Our style of innovation was like that of Steve Jobs, called Auteur, coming up with new products based on personal experience and a vision of what was needed, leaving the other stuff out. This isn't innovation by committee, trying to get everybody's idea or feature into a product. That's what we were doing with our boat designs. We just kept coming up with boats that we wanted to own that didn't exist. Welcome to The In Factor. Today, I'm privileged to host a true maverick, Robert Johnstone. Bob's journey isn't just a tale of sailing or business, but the story of an entrepreneurial spirit that's guided him across the seas and through the realms of innovation. From learning to sail at two years old to co-founding the internationally recognized J-Boats and MJM Yachts, he's always had an unyielding desire to chart new territories. These entrepreneurial waters recently led him to pin Maverick Marketer, a captivating memoir fusing together tales of sailing, love, and entrepreneurship. Through the lens of his entrepreneurial mindset, Bob shares how passion and persistence can lead to incredible breakthroughs. The lessons he's learned from building over 14,000 boats, earning 20 plus Boat of the Year awards, and being inducted into the National Sailing Hall of Fame are truly invaluable. Whether you're an inspiring entrepreneur, an avid sailor, or just someone who loves a good success story, Bob is here to inspire and encourage you to navigate your own entrepreneurial journey with confidence. Let's set sail into the conversation. So Bob, thank you for joining me on The In Factor today. You're welcome, Rebecca. So this is just such an honor for me to have you on this podcast. I met you several years ago at a boat show, and your name is well known in the, the boating and the sailing industry. You're, you're, um, you know, you're quite an inspiration with everything that you've done. And it's just, I don't know, it's just an honor for me as a boater and a sailor and as someone uh, working in this industry to really... Um, you know, have you have time to talk to you today. So thank you for joining us. And I'm excited to share more about your story and your new book. You are most welcome, Rebecca. It's nice to talk to someone else. Who's a <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot more of us now after the pandemic, uh, if, if sales are any evidence of that. So uh, boating has done pretty well for, for a few years. Well, it's been a good, a wonderful industry for a long time. So uh, again, it's it's just great to have you today. And and the in factor, you know, we talk about an entrepreneurial mindset. And your new book, Maverick Marketing, which I had the opportunity to read early on and loved, as you well know, is a wonderful book. Uh, your background's in marketing, and I'm just curious as we get started, you know, telling your story. Um, you know, how much of a maverick you are, because mavericks are defined as someone who's unorthodox or independent minded. And I think our audience would love to hear more about your story. So take us back to the beginning. How did you become the founder of two top boat companies, a book author, 
and one of the most recognized names in sailing. Were you from a boating family? I think you told me your hand was on a tiller at two years old. So how did this all happen and how did you get to where you are now? Well, I certainly started out as being part of a boating family. My father was on the Princeton sailing team in 1929 when intercollegiate sailing was just getting started. He put me on the tiller at age two in a parent-child race. After 20 seconds of push-pull instruction, I said no, and we lost the race. Other than that shaky start, I've always loved sailing as a sport. It's what I dreamed about all year long. I lived from one summer to the next. I used to draw pictures of sailboats in my first grade notebooks and put my initials RJ in the sail. So that whole experience was a big influence in my life. But as far as getting from there to actually creating a couple of boat companies, that's a pretty long story. You have to read the book. <laughs> Well, yeah, you've got to save some of it for the book, but you, you left the corporate world, right, to join your brother with J-Boats, which is arguably the number one worldwide performance boat in the world, and, and it has that little J on it. So uh, how, did you, how did that all happen for you? Well, the boyhood dream did become a reality, but from the standpoint of marketing or creating a business, it was a long process. I was born during the Depression and my parents were very much concerned with security. When I graduated from college, then got married with the prospect of having to bring up a family, my first reaction was to get a job in a big company. That's just what you did in the 1950s. I wasn't ready to start up a company of my own at that point. That entrepreneurial process was soon started when Quaker sent me off to South America first as a production manager, then to become general manager and CEO at age 26, having to build and make profitable those Quaker subsidiaries in Colombia and Venezuela was like running my own company. In trying to build those businesses, I realized pretty quickly that skills like production, accounting, and sales were more readily acquired than what really builds a business innovative marketing strategies, and new product development. I wasn't going to get those skills on my own in Latin America. For instance, if you come up with the idea for a new product, take a year to develop it, then launch it into the market, it could take two or three years to learn whether it's a success or not. I concluded that I couldn't live long enough to get good at marketing on my own, so raised my hand after eight years asking to get back to product management at Quaker headquarters in Chicago. Quaker, Procter & Gamble, and General Foods were the marketing powerhouses at the time. Quaker had 28 different business areas, and they had to be making errors right and left. I figured it was better to learn from somebody else's errors than my own. And so that's how it started. And then I had the benefit of being able to work alongside one of Harvard Business School's best marketing professors, Walter Salmon. Quaker had hired Walter to come and shape up its product management group. And at that point, I was in charge of canned kennel ration dog food, believe it or not. My first challenge 
was when the president wanted to raise the price of canned dog food to improve quarterly earnings. I resisted it because a six-pack of canned kennel ration was selling for under a dollar. I knew that if we raised the price, supermarkets would end the discounted pricing and our market share would go down the tubes. The president wasn't happy, so he decided to have Walter Salmon teach his product managers how to make more money. I volunteered to be the guinea pig in this program. Here was my chance to get the Harvard Business School education I'd missed out on. I'd be going one-on-one with their top marketing professor. That was a great experience, and it led to two key marketing strategies I later used in J-Boats and MJM Yachts. One was the use of an umbrella brand name, where that letter J over a bar with a boat model number underneath would appear on every mainsail. The beauty of an umbrella brand is when you advertise the latest and greatest new product, the magic and excitement rubs off on all prior products introduced under the same brand. So that was a revelation. That was one of the lessons I learned. I did well enough in the pet food business that Quaker put me in charge of Willy Wonka candies. That became a lesson in distribution and corporate hubris. Quaker had the misguided notion that they knew how to talk to kids and that mothers would run to supermarkets and buy Willy Wonka Oompa Loompas and Super Scrunch bars off the shelves after seeing the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. With no media advertising, trouble was, candies aren't sold through supermarket aisles so much as they are in all those little mom-and-pop convenience stores, gas stations, and movie theaters. So Quaker blew it there, as they did with Snapple as well, which also had the same type of distribution. And one of the lessons of this whole program is that you have to pay attention to how and where products are distributed. I was learning from other people's errors and still managed to make some of my own. I'll describe those later on. I managed to commit two errors in starting my first venture, the photo wall mural company, Naturescapes. The purest expression of the concept was Ansel Adams-type black-and-white images of nature. I was betting on Alvin Toffler's future shock that as the world gets more complicated and difficult to understand, people want to relate to natural things, whether it's live plants or pets. So my thought was that black and white images allowed a person to engage by projecting themselves into that image, creating the temperature, etc. Was I ever wrong? We invested our minor savings into six beautiful black and white images. I remember the first time we showed them at a home show in Chicago. People would go by and say, ooh, too bad it isn't in color. Some preliminary consumer research could have saved me about $60,000. The other error was thinking we could bypass the normal distribution through paint and wallpaper outlets or interior designers. A full page in Chicago Magazine yielded about three orders after a week. Wrong again. We raised the prices to include dealer margins, came up with design books, and the business took off. 
but we had to take a second mortgage on our house and start up again with one good color image of pines and birches in front of Walden Pond. I was just going to say that those are that's those are some amazing lessons which you took from your previous work into uh, your own businesses and then into the partnership with your brother. So how so how long how did you make the the transition immediately? No. I had a great job with Quaker before leaving. After the debacle of the Willy Wonka candy business, the president asked me to write a white paper on how Quaker screwed up. I didn't make many friends with that expose, but the president loved it and asked me, asked me what, what job I wanted next. I replied, I'd like to do the fun part of your job. And he asked me what that was, and I said, work on marketing and new product development. So the new job of Director of Market Strategy and Analysis was created for me, reporting to the president and his six-man planning committee. I'd review the three-year plans of those 20-plus business areas and recommend on how they could reduce their forecasted working capital needs and improve profitability. I applied the Boston Consulting Group matrix of cash cows, dogs, stars, and question marks. Then in 1973, the oil crisis struck, and Quaker just went into paralysis. So I asked, what am I going to do next? And just dust this plan off and present it again next year? At that point, I concluded, you know, I've had it with a big corporation. There's a great quote by David Brooks in my book, he was a psychiatrist, and he described my situation pretty well. I had ascended life's first mountain and found the view dissatisfying, and so I was about to climb the second mountain, which was to follow my love of sailing into the business world by starting out in a small division of another Fortune 500 company. Yeah, sure. And that's really where my professional boating career started propelled by being hired as VP Marketing of AMF Alcourt, which made the Sunfish. And that brings up another key element of marketing strategy, following demographic trends. I was blessed by coming into the world 10 years before the baby boomers, that 70 million person bulge in the, in the population. The sport of sailing in the 1970s was exploding with 100,000 or more boats being sold yearly. Sailed off the beach. Hobie cats, sunfish, snarks, lasers, and so on. I don't know if you remember that. You were probably too young. <laughs> I, well, I know the lasers and the sunfish for sure. Well, That's how I learned. Yeah. You can even... Mail in an empty, cool cigarette carton and a hundred bucks and get a snark sailboat. We're smoking cigarettes back then, too. Right? That's right. It was a pretty effective program at the time. They sold something like 48,000 boats that first year. The problem became once these people learned to sail on those fun, fast boats in bathing suits off the beach, 
they want to involve their family, their girlfriends or boyfriends, their kids or whatever. And they wanted to spend more time on the water sailing. A sunfish was great in the Caribbean in a resort or in a summer on a hot water lake. But the problem is 80% of the population of America is next to cold water. Whether it's in the West Coast, New England, Lake Michigan, or even Long Island Sound, you can get cold sailing a sunfish in a bathing suit after an hour. What was needed was a larger, fast boat to carry more people who could sail in their street clothes. It didn't exist. What was available were small cruisers like Catalina 22s and O'Day 25s, basically slugs, which their marketing people tried to load up with more and more bunks and amenities. When you do that, the boat doesn't go very fast. And so that was the founding premise for the J-24. I walked into AMF Alcourt with a three-year plan saying, you've got to come up with a boat between 20 and 30 feet that was fast, that provided just basic accommodation, that was fun to sail. That's how J-Boats started. Then it was a matter of riding the demographic trends and coming up with the boats that an aging population wanted. The same thing was going on with powerboats starting with a 13-foot Boston whaler. Then larger whalers and Grand Banks trawlers. We followed our J-boat owners to 30 feet, then 36 feet, 44 feet, 48 feet, 53 feet, and so on. We were just doing our thing, not unlike another garage entrepreneur. Our style of innovation was like that of Steve Jobs, called Auteur. That's coming up with new products based on one's own experience and vision of what's needed, leaving the other stuff out. Yeah. This isn't innovation by committee, trying to get everybody's idea or feature into a product. That's what we were doing with our boat designs. We just kept coming up with boats that we wanted to own that didn't exist. Yeah. It's really fascinating, too, because if you think about your then later or, or in more recent years, your MJM yachts, which uh, is really named after your lovely wife, Mary, uh, you know, you were still following that trend, right? People got older. Uh, my husband and I had we sailed for many, many years, and then we reached a point where we went to the dark side and got a powerboat. So then, so MJM really was kind of continue. Would you say it was continuing to follow that demographic trend as, as a lot of those boaters decided maybe they wanted something that was a little different experience, more of a cruising rather than a high performance? That's right. And we were using ourselves as the models of what all those baby boomers would eventually want to do as they grew older. For our 40th wedding anniversary, I gave Mary, ourselves, a Dyer 29 powerboat, which is a cute sort of down east style boat. Next thing we knew, we were spending more time on that Dyer 29 powerboat than we were on our 40-foot J120 racing sailboat. We had to ask ourselves, what's going on here? The answer was, we were getting older. 
hauling up mainsails and folding them on the boom, and being in foul weather gear all day long, was getting a little old. So that's how our powerboat program got started. I then applied the same strategy in creating new sailboats, but with powerboats. If we were going to get a powerboat, what was it going to be? Well, let's see. The Hinkleys are pretty, but they're not very functional. The functional lobster yachts are pretty, but they're slow. We wanted something that was both pretty and functional at the same time. Knock them dead beauty along with versatility of use, but also fast. The same best performing brand strategy was applied to powerboats that got us going with sailboats. When at Quaker, as director of market strategy, they expressed interest in recreational products. To come up with a strategy, I analyzed the market. There were three ways to go. The cheapest product, which sells to just about anybody when the market's good and they don't know any better. Then there was the middle range product, which are not very innovative. They change color of the cushions or striping each year. Then there's the best performing product. I used as an example, Jean-Claude Keeley holding up his Rossignol skis after winning a downhill race. People would go out and buy the more expensive Rossies because they believed it would help them become better skiers. The best performing product is also more recession-proof because the last thing aficionados will give up is their sport. Among powerboats, we couldn't find one we liked better than our Dyer 29, and there was no best-performing brand. It wasn't like sailboats, because you have a finite energy source, the wind. You had to be very sophisticated in terms of your design and construction of a sailboat. And that led us to boats like the J125 and the J145, which were carbon fiber hulls that were exceptionally fast. So when we looked at the powerboat market, we said, okay, how do you find performance in a powerboat? Traditionally, the powerboat industry said, the faster you went, the better the performance, right? But you could put six 400 horsepower outboards on a barn door and go 50 miles an hour. That's not a very sophisticated design. It's just throwing money at a product. We define performance on the basis of the amount of speed you could generate with X amount of horsepower. We wanted a boat that could cruise at 25 knots to stay ahead of following seas, to avoid being overtaken and rolled around by waves. To get there, we had to find a sailboat builder because there was no high-tech production powerboat builder using epoxy composites. Sure, sure. We started with Mark Lindsay at Boston Boatworks, who had built America's Cup boats and Olympic-winning sailboats. I, I love that too because as we you know as we were talking about it earlier, I mean as I mentioned earlier, you were following this wave of baby boomers and you know baby boomers moving from uh, wanting to race uh, sailboat racing uh, to wanting a higher performing, more comfortable, safer ride on a powerboat later in life. So the and 
and uh, you know, so so what a great lesson there, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs to think about because you learned a lot of these principles along the way with all of your different positions, and you found different ways to apply them depending on the stage and the and what was going on in the environment around you, and uh, just a, I think a lot of great lessons there for an entrepreneur to think about as they think about pursuing their own entrepreneurial uh, dreams. Yeah. To understand the dynamics of the audience that you're addressing is really important. As people got older in boating, they had a choice to make. If they had a boat that both the husband and wife could handle, say a 45-footer, but then they got to the point where there are health issues or what happens if one person gets injured, Will the other get the boat back by themselves alone? Seems there are two routes to take. You either get a smaller boat you can both easily manage and tie up to your dock and go day boating with, or you get a much bigger boat and get a paid captain and crew to drive you around in comfort. Right, that's right. Those are some of the dynamics with MJM. What are the baby boomers going to want now? Well, they're going to want a pretty boat By this time, they're probably back on shore from their worldwide cruising or long-distance cruising, and they have a lovely waterfront home with a dock. So what boat is going to look really great on the dock and would still offer the chance for some weekend cruising? So that was the question we were trying to answer in coming up with the positioning and design of our first boat, the MJM 34Z. Yeah, and it's it's well, it's a great boat. And of course, that's where I met you on on an MJM actually uh, checking it checking it out. And you, I, I, so you know, I love all this. It's so amazing to 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 listen to your journey and and um, not just see these beautiful boats that came out of it, uh, but also the 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 marketing mindset that went on behind it. And, you know, a part of it, you know, you, you entitled your book Maverick Marketer and, you know, being a maverick really means you're, you're an independent thinker and you're kind of willing to do things a little bit differently. So very innovation focused, but very smart about it uh, because you definitely had a strategy but there's always an element of risk in there. And you started out your conversation by saying, you know, you were married and you needed to have an income. You had graduated from college. And so you took a corporate job. So I just have to ask you, do you think that being a sailor, you learned about risk early and you were able to apply some of that? Because um, you know, with sailing, you just never know. Well, with boating, you never know. You don't know what the weather's going to be. You can't control that. You might have, you might have considered, you might have thought that you had everything under control and then something happens as we both know. And I see you smiling. So, but, but this is to me, there are so many parallels there for entrepreneurship from, you know, recognizing opportunities, when to sail, when not to sail, even more importantly, sometimes, um, you know, what kind of team do you want with you uh, along the way? And and then how do you perform under pressure? And how do you deal when things don't work out the way you want? Do you think that growing up sailing helped you uh, deal with some of that uh, along the way? It must have had some influence. It's hard to know to what extent. 
The Harvard Business School runs a decision tree exercise. Yep. Which teaches how you get to from point A to point B, assigning probabilities to several different paths you could take. So you go with the one that has the highest probability of success, and then you go down that path and you see the next branch and pick the most likely and keep following the most promising until you get where you want to go. Jeff Bezos, in his book of letters, mentioned that a startup company to keep its dynamism moving forward has to have fast decision-making, knowing only about 70% of what one would like to know. The same is true in sailboat racing. You have a bunch of boats around you. You have the wind to deal with, the tide. You have your own boat's performance and the competitors. You're making rapid decisions, constantly changing course uh, and trying to figure out which tack to take. Should I go up? Should I go down? And so on. You're dealing with probabilities and assessing outcomes as you make all these decisions. I wondered in the prologue of my book whether that decision-making process while racing as a youth helped me later on in life. To win the race, you just can't sit still until you have all the information you need. Some people refer to that paralysis as an engineering mind that is so precise it needs all the information and data before moving forward. Whereas the sailboat racing mind is you've got to get across the finish line and you just can't sit there and wait until you figure out which way the wind's coming from. And, and you know, the, the other piece in all that, I think, is communication, which my husband and I learned a lot about each other when we uh, started sailing together. And we had these headsets that we called the marriage savers. Uh, because, you know, I was often at the helm and he would be, you know, barking orders and uh, that didn't go over so well. <laughs> uh, and especially when you're docking, you know, you don't want to be screaming at each other. Um, so um, the communication skills that I learned, uh, because you have to be very specific and you often have to repeat back to, to other people what what you've said or or what they've said to you to ensure that you understand fully. And I think, I think there's just so many amazing lessons for building a building and working with a team, um, you know, and, uh, and accomplishing a goal like winning the race, as you pointed out. What you bring up in communications is amazing. That is so important. When you're sailing, you're tapping into your subconscious to some extent, to make decisions. You've been here before. You can't quite articulate it, but you're responding to some sort of prior situation in the back of your mind. For that to come out and apply to the current scene is really important. There are only two people I've sailed with in my life who really made me feel I was taking advantage of everything I knew, making decisions and driving the boat. One of them was Bill Trinkle. Dennis Connor's right-hand man as tactician and trimmer. The other one is my grandson, Nick, who just has the ability to describe what's going on without telling me what to do. Most of the time, people you put in, put in charge of being tactician issue, issue commands, go right, go left, do this, do that. And that just shuts down your whole mind. To be able to feed information to someone in a way 
that is non-demanding, conversational, and collaborative is an amazing skill. Yes, it is. It is. And what a leadership skill. You know, I think that that's, uh, that, that's a great point. I really love that you brought that up because I think that, you know, there's, there's just so many parallels there. And the other thing, your book, the, the Maverick Marketer, uh, draws on the concept of creative problem solving throughout, which I absolutely loved because I, that's, that's a topic that I teach to my students. Um, you know, this, this whole, and, and if you, you know, in a lot of surveys of, of leaders, that's what they're looking for. People that can be creative problem solvers. So I just, I'm really curious about creative problem solving and sort of how that helped you build companies and achieve, you know, an amazing career, uh, not only in business, but in life. Um, You know, can you share a story from your book or something about creative problem solving uh, with our audience? One early challenge I had <clears throat> was coming up with a raperina, an instant arepa mix in Colombia. This was the bread of Colombia. Initially, they didn't have wheat bread. It was corn-based with a soft, moist interior and a thin, cohesive crust on the outside. The housewives boiled degerminated corn overnight and then ground it into a masa Uh, formed a patty to put it on a charcoal grill, flipping it back and forth. It's eaten three meals a day, as what Juan Valdez, that Colombian coffee guy in the ads, had in his cariel, which looked like a purse. Quaker U.S. tried to come up with an instant version, since they were the largest corn producer of grits and cornmeal in the U.S. After seven years of research, they finally said, okay, Here it is. This is the best we can do. Put it into test market. It was a disaster. It got hard on the outside and cracked and was all dry on the inside. It was packaged in an expensive, triple laminated Benko seal, cardboard poly and aluminum foil box at more than twice the price of the homemade. Time to get creative. There's got to be a way to figure this out. So I put on my khaki suit, typical gringo, and went up into the poor barrios around Medellin, the city which had the reputation of making the best arepas. Here I was knocking on housewife's doors. A gathering crowd was wondering, just what is this gringo up to anyway? They started following me around, asking me questions like, what do you think about Kennedy's Alianza para el Progreso? The housewives described how they made the masa. After cooking it overnight, they put it into a device that looked like an old meat grinder, except it wasn't forcing the corn out through little holes. It was shearing the cooked corn with a couple of serrated plates. They then formed patties, which were put on the grill. I then had a flashback to my eighth grade biology class. The hammer mills we'd been using to break up the dry corn was rupturing the cell walls of the corn. What they were doing in the the homes was more of a shearing effect that retained the cell structure of the corn, which in turn retained moisture when cooked. 
So we went back and got some big industrial versions of what the housewives were using and started making our product with them. The net result was we created an instant product that turned out to be better than homemade. That's a great story. And what I hear when you talk about it is that you saw something that was, you saw a failure, at least an outcome that wasn't what you wanted. And so you decided to go learn more about it to see what you could learn. And then you started bringing together lots of information, uh, even all the way back to your eighth grade classroom to, <laughs> to bear, to try to figure out how to solve it. So, you know, it, it kind of leads me into this whole line of questioning around failure and, and uh, challenges, uh, because it, as I listen to you talk, I, I know you've dealt with a lot of a lot of outcomes that weren't what you wanted, uh, what some people might think of as failures. And I think one thing that holds back a lot of entrepreneurs, and one that I see when I work with a lot of students, is they have a fear of failure. So I'm just curious about how you think about failure, and 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 maybe how you. Uh, it sounds like you use this creative problem solving approach to help you deal with it, but I'm just, I'm really curious about your mindset around failure and, and what kinds of thoughts you might have for the young people out there that are listening to this and they're, uh, they see your success, but they're afraid of failure along the way. That's a very good question. My first reaction would be, we weren't totally crazy with our product idea. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come up with it. We just missed the mark somehow. There's got to be a way to make it work. So how and where did we go wrong? What assumptions did we make that might have been off the mark? Did we do our homework with regard to consumer input via research? Are there any close parallels in the marketplace that would give us clues as to what we should have done or should be doing? In the case of a rape arena, Besides process and quality, we still had a price and infestation problem to overcome. The answer was more guerrilla than big food company marketing. We copied the Galleria packaging. We sold our instant product in a 70-pound paper sack with a poly liner and gave the vendor 72 branded, white, empty, one-pound paper bags with a blue Quaker, a rape arena. Let him cheat a little bit. The stall owner would only fill the number of bags that could be sold during the day. The rest would be preserved in the poly line sack. Everything else on the stall shelf was put up in plain brown one pound paper bags. When using the same bulk distribution for Incop Arena, a mix to prevent Kawashiakor, a protein deficiency taking the lives of 40,000 infants yearly in Colombia. We were cited by both the World Health Organization and Harvard Business School for creative, creative packaging. I've already mentioned the Quaker Oats failures with Willy Wonka candy and Snapple. Using misguided distribution advertising th theories mixed in with some corporate hubris. I mentioned how Naturescapes was turned around after changing from black and white to color. We hadn't done our consumer research. And sticking to wallpaper distribution 
rather than thinking we could go direct mail order. That nature shapes correction worked so well that with Mary's personal selling skills, we were earning $600,000 in 2023 dollars annually, which enabled us to put all four of our kids through college and fund the first year startup of J Boats Inc. That's great. I love that. So you bootstrapped J Boats. That's right. We learned our lesson about the importance of dealers. With J Boats, we employed a dealer network and a one design product strategy that our competitors overlooked to great success. Other performance boats were custom built by designer builders who had no clue as to how many they could sell. They didn't want to give up any margin to dealers. I had learned in working with AMF Alcourt, which had about 150 dealers, that the way to sell lots of boats is through professional dealers throughout the country. So we started out with that same dealer strategy with a J24, and it worked. It was the first performance production boat that had a decent dealer network. We had learned from our mistakes and we're applying those lessons to products afterwards. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of the things that I often talk to my students about the importance of being a learner. Uh, you learn, you're constantly learning as an entrepreneur, right? That's for sure. All about learning. And it's in each one of these endeavors, um, and you've had a number of them, in your life, and I'm sure you know some amazingly successful, and some maybe not as successful as you had hoped along the way. But but in every one of them, uh, you didn't you didn't have all the answers when you went in. I'm guessing you had to learn it along the way. And I think that that that's what stops a lot of people, a lot of students. When I talk to them, they they fear they don't know enough. And um, it sounds like to me that your advice is you got to get out there and try and learn and, uh, and, uh, and that you'll be learning all, the whole way. There's another factor that can make it difficult for your students to move forward. Will the product be accepted? Even if you think you have a great product, do other people share the worth of your idea? It's a good idea to find out before you put too much money behind it. And unless you can confidently forecast how many you can sell, you won't be able to predict a high enough level of sales to justify low-cost production. Okay. Another consideration is, are you coming up with a product that is something somebody else already did, or are you coming up with a product out of your own life experience? I can think back on some of the products I could have come up with if I pursued them, but never did. They were outside my areas of expertise, and so I went on and did other things I like. An example is covered in the chapter on satellite navigation. I was looking for better ways to win races on boats with instrumentation, have a better idea of how fast I was going, how fast the current was going, and where I was. The best products, I think, come out of one's own experience. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And sometimes uh, the students and the young entrepreneurs that I work with probably need to gain some experience, and that experience can often guide uh, what you want to do or what you should do. Yeah, what you're going to be best at 
what you're going to be best at. Yeah. And, and, and you can, it, I think what you keep bringing up is you have to provide value uh, to somebody else and you have to understand them. So you have to have empathy for your market. You have to know them. You have to, and, and if you have experienced it yourself, it, it's a lot easier sometimes to understand um, than if you have to be, uh, you know, if you have to go out and explore it for, without that kind of background. No question. No question. So um, I, I'm curious about network and uh, your uh, experience as an entrepreneur, because networking is something that um, uh, most entrepreneurs seem to need to, they need other people along the way. Let me put it that way. There, there's, um, you know, they, they have to engage with other people. Have you always had a strategy about networking or is it just part of who you are or, um, you know, how important, I guess, has network, has building a network been to your success in all, you know, in these various industries? Well, there are two aspects of networking. One is the distribution system and the other is your personal network. The distribution system is going to get the word out to people you'd never know. With Naturescapes, I didn't know dealers for photo wall murals, and I wasn't in the interior decorator or architectural digest world. So we made some basic errors to start. Advertising helps, but many products aren't sold unless a friend recommended it. Take that double-page spread in Chicago Magazine for direct sale of Naturescapes at half the price you could buy photo murals for in a store. The same is true for sailboats and motorboats. A friend recommended it, or I saw it on the water and fell in love with it. Those are the primary reasons for considering a new boat. Starting out can be tough, because you've got one boat and no friends who own one. That's where dealers help. The more people you can get talking about your boat and showing it and demonstrating it, the better. Getting those dealers signed up for a truly new product can be a challenge because the only item they want to stock is a product like what their competitor was selling last year. They're not looking forward and imagining right. what people might want to buy if it was available. Starting out with a J24 to avoid a conflict of interest, I approached the best sailboat dealers I knew, other than those selling sunfish. They'd say, Bob, that's a great boat. That's something I'd like to sail but it won't sell here. I'd reply, what do you mean it won't sell? The dealer would then say, well, you know, it's just that they don't buy boats like that around here. I'd then have to respond, hey, what you're saying is there's never been a boat like this around here to buy, right? It's hard for me to believe that as an experienced sailor, you think this is a great boat, why wouldn't other sailors in the area think it's a good boat too? Just get one, race it, and see what happens. Well, that's how it started, going after dealers one at a time to plug into their networks to influence a bunch of people. Then there's your personal network. Mine included sailmakers, Olympians, and five years of National Youth Championship connections. It's easier today with the social media multiplier there are ways to get the word out much more efficiently than back in the 1970s. That's right. That's right. It's it's still about building a community, though, isn't it? And you know about and and I I love the I love that your 
what you're saying because it's really as an entrepreneur sometimes you're the one that has you're the only one initially that has that vision and you've got to be able to communicate with others about the the possibilities for it and you got to have you got to not only provide value but also be able to tell that story in a way uh that 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 others who can help you sell your product in your case the dealers could believe in it enough to to, to carry the line. Well, yes. When creating the product, it's important to address the opportunities for networking. For instance, our biggest competitor when launching the J24 was the Canadian-built CNC24. It sold through a good dealer network. It wasn't that fast, but they had some one-design fleets established and the builder had a quality reputation. Greed caused them to make a major networking mistake. They'd introduced a new improved CNC24 model, a Mark II or Mark III, every year. This pulled the rug out from under one design fleet development. Older boats were outdated and no longer competitive. So we focused on our one design strategy, keeping our boats all the same from year to year and creating class rules that said any change from the factory supplied standard boat was illegal. Our local fleets and enthusiasm for supporting the J24 class became infectious, as did the networking between clubs in a given region, then nationally and internationally. Another factor related to networking is the owner opportunity to meet new like-minded friends. The J24 had bunks, safety lifelines, a cooler, and a place for a stove that worked for short family weekend cruises. If you went off on a J-24 and tied up next to a 45-footer in some harbor for the night, next thing you know, you're going back and forth onto each other's boats. They're inviting you over for a drink, etc. So you develop a whole new circle of friends who are cruising. Additionally, if you have a one-design race boat with fleets in your region, next thing you know, you're meeting people at these regattas like Block Island Race Week, and you're not limited to members of your local club. A product design strategy can contribute to owner networking. Yeah, that's great advice. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but you actually built that into the design of the product so that it provided you even greater opportunity. Then, when we went global with licensed builders in the UK, Australia, Japan, Argentina, Brazil, Italy, South Africa, and France. Next thing you know, you're on an airplane running into people and pilots that have one of our boats, making friends all over the world. Of course, nowadays you have social media. Sun Stewart emails a 30-page J News every Friday to 15,000 owners, dealers, and channels worldwide. Each of some 200 dealers worldwide forwards it to their 5,000-plus customer database. Factoring in the social media multiplier, you're at 1 million readers. It has regatta results from all over the world, great photos, personal profiles, and cruising adventure stories. J News creates a strong sense of belonging to a unique community and a connection to the brand J-Boats. It's not surprising that J-Boats make up 25 to 50% of all designs participating in major races and race weeks worldwide. 
more than twice the number of any other brand, and it's growing. In the Bayview Mackinac race, just completed, 18 of the top 30 finishers among the 200-plus boats were J-boats. The closest to that was Beneteau with only 13%, only four boats. Yeah, yeah, like-minded people, and what a great, uh, what a great marketing lesson in that. Well, you know, Bob, I could talk on forever because I love this. So many great stories, and so many good stories in your new book. It's a great book, and I highly recommend it. In fact, I think every everybody who wants to be an entrepreneur should be reading this book because there are so many great lessons in there. I mean, for anybody who wants to be in marketing as well, but I, since my, my audience and my community is mostly entrepreneurs and those who are entrepreneurially minded, um, you know, it's a, it's a great book. And I'm just so glad that you decided to share these stories. I believe in stories. I think they're great ways to learn. And it's just, I don't know, it's been an honor for me to have this conversation with you and to to share your story and our friendship um, here on The Infactor. And before I go, I just have one last question I have to ask you. It's a question I ask all my guests, and that is knowing that our audience is uh, those people who want to apply an entrepreneurial mindset in their work, whether they're working for a corporation or they're starting their own company or they want to start their own company, if you could only give them one piece of advice, now I know they have to buy the book because there's so much in there, but if there it was only one piece of advice, what would that be? Follow your heart. Do something that means a lot to you and that you're close to and have some knowledge of. There are a lot of lessons here. When you think you have a great idea, make sure you double check it with consumer research. Make sure there are other people out there that think the same way before you try to turn it into a business. <laughs> Make sure there's somebody else out there that thinks it's a good idea too. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And I love following your heart. And you have certainly done that. And what a beautiful career you, you've had and uh, what great lessons. So thank you again for joining me today. And lots of love to you and Mary. And what a, what a, great, uh, what a great experience. Thank you. You're welcome, Rebecca. It's been great fun. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.